It's really good to see everybody. I've got so many things coming off of me. I, it reminds me of when I was in training. You know, you could always tell who was the lowest on the totem pole, the, the resident that had the most pagers on them. So I think I'm there. Let me begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this gathering, Lord, of my brothers and my sisters. And Lord, we want to feast on your word. We want to hear what you have to say. Lord, please work through me. Father, thank you for the rain this week and the blessing that it is for all of us, Lord. We know you are in control of it. I pray that your word uh, is glorified this day. I pray that uh, we are open uh, to receive it, Lord. And I pray that in the end that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Is Kelly in here? I don't see him. I just wanted to thank Kelly for the past several weeks, just excellent teaching from the book of Luke. He, he always blesses me when he teaches. So, I have been teaching in the, the Psalms uh, recently. And uh, the last time we were in Psalm 8, I, uh, we, we uh, spoke about Jesus as being the kinsman redeemer. And we looked at that, and what a beautiful uh, principle that is from God's Word. And it kind of stuck with me, and I, I wanted to look at it closer. So, you know, the, the best illustration of that, that concept of the kinsman redeemer is, is located in the uh, book of Ruth. So that's where we'll be for a while. I'm going to start off with uh, uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. That's right. It does not like my phone. And so, we have the book of Ruth, he said. Try it again. Um, <clears throat> Ruth is one of two books in the scriptures we have that are named after women. And uh, it's great because God uses these ladies mightily to accomplish his will. Um, the book, the other book, of course, is what? Esther. Esther. Okay, so without uh, too much detail, I'd like to just say that those two books, to me, they kind of represent uh, reverse images. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, in Esther, you have a Jew, and she marries a Gentile, a king, and she is possibly or probably not in the right place when this happens. You know, she's a post-Babylonian captivity Jew, and 
she should probably have been in Israel, but she wasn't. And you know what? God is going to use her in spite of her choices. And, she, and he does it to save his, he saves his chosen people from annihilation in the process. Ruth is a Gentile. In fact, she's a widowed Gentile. She's already been married to a Jew, but in the wrong place. After he dies, by faith, she goes to the right place. And God uses her mightily, too, because of her faith, because of her choices. And uh, through her, he connects the tribe of Judah all the way to Jesus Christ in the genealogy. And he does it by supplying the link of David, King David, through Ruth. So, these, so Ruth, it, it really is an amazing book. Is Sue here? Because I put PowerPoint on hers too. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, we're just going to have to go without it. Um, except that I need it. Okay, so we have uh, in the book of Ruth this amazing book. It, it is uh, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a personal love story and it illustrates some foundational principles for us that are found in the New Testament, revealed later in the New Testament. You know, J. Vernon McGee makes a pretty good comment about if you come to the Bible and study uh, with purely an intellectual motive, you can get the hard facts of the gospel out of the scriptures. You can get them. They're there. They're not hidden. But if you do that, there's a risk of missing the love side of redemption. You can't do that with the book of Ruth. Because we do. We'll see the love side of redemption as we go through. And there are uh, several or multiple levels that you can study this book on. Multiple levels. Starting with historical. Um, Ruth is found right after the book of Judges. And that's in the historical section of the Bible. This is, it records real events that occurred in Israel's history. This is not fiction. Uh, it would have been about the time uh, around 1400 B.C. to around 1050 B.C. So that's one level we can look at. Theologically, there are principles here, customs and laws that uh, we're going to be able to look at. They'll be illustrated nicely in this four-chapter book. So theologically, that's two levels. And a subset of theological would be the biblical illustrations that are here, the types uh, that are employed and that we'll see Old Testament persons and events being used to foreshadow persons and things that uh, will be found in the New Testament. And then fourthly, there is a, a, bunch of, a lot of practical application for the believer, especially, uh, concerning our walk, our progressive stages of our walk, and, uh, and also our understanding of our relationship to Jesus Christ. I think that's important. In the book of Ruth, we find an incredible story. And you know what? It's not boring. It has features within it to keep us, to keep our attention. We'll find tragedy and romance in the book of Ruth. There'll be commitment and dedication. There are trials. There'll be testing. And ultimately, there'll be deliverance and freedom. And what I'm saying is that even though it is a book of history, there's a lot more here than its mere historical benefit for us to gain. 
So we'll look at that. You know, another interesting feature about the, the book is uh, that it uh, uses meanings of names. Uh, the meanings of names and places will be very important to us. Uh, if you're familiar with John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, do you remember in that book how names and places are used? You, know, you have an individual named Christian and evangelist, and you have pliable and obstinate. And these names are very informative for us. They give us insight into the character of the individuals. It gives us a deeper understanding of the concepts that the Holy Spirit would like us to grab. And in the book of Ruth, a major concept we're going to see is grace. It figures prominently in this book. And that is especially in contrast to the law, and I mean the letter of the law, that is legalism. So we're going to see grace. This is that love side of redemption that I've spoken of. It'll be helpful if we look at a little bit now of the historical background, just to kind of give us the when of when the, the events in the book of Ruth occur. So the time and the setting. It is the, indeed the period of the judges, uh, around 1400 to 1050 B.C., around three to 400 years. And so a little timeline just to review the chronology. You have, you know, at the end of uh, Genesis, you have uh, Jacob and gathered with all uh, of his sons, including Joseph, and they're in Egypt. And uh, we end there, but there is uh, about a 400 years time frame that uh, lapses. And what started out as a family of around 70 ends up as an entire nation about 400 years later. And that is when uh, Moses is called upon by God to take these people, to free his people, to take them out of the wilderness and to bring them to a land that he wants them to be in. And it takes about 40 years just because of disbelief. And uh, as they're coming into the land, the baton of leadership is handed over from Moses to Joshua. And he, he has instructions. His instructions are to conquer all the peoples um, before they go into the promised land. Um, and he's told to do it completely, right? And yet, he, uh, they don't. They don't completely destroy these people. You know, it's kind of like uh, an incomplete uh, excision of a malignant tumor and all those cells that you leave behind, the problem is still there. And Israel's going to find out that the problem is still there for two, them too with the surrounding nations. And so they begin, when they come in, they don't go straight to a king. They come in and they, are, they go off into regional divisions throughout the land. And these are run by the judges. And uh, so that Israel's not unified. They're just kind of a loose confederacy. Uh, the judges are raised up by God. These really are not models of spiritual virtue, let me tell you. They are used of God, but they are unlikely leaders. They are weak in faith, and their conduct is irresponsible. And these are the leaders. <laughs> you can imagine the people. And so uh, when we uh, come to the end of the book of Judges, I'm going to read to you a passage from Judges 21-25. It says, uh, In those days there was no king in Israel, 
and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, this is just a recipe for disaster. You know, I read a, an article by jo uh, John MacArthur the other day. It was called uh, Right in Their Own Eyes. And he says, what we have before us is spoken of in Romans 1 for sure, and it is actually the defining principle uh, that comes out of the, uh, the current value system that our generation enjoys called postmodernism. And it's hard. I mean, there are no absolutes, no absolute truth, no moral standards. And what you end up with is a moral uh, chaos or anarchy. Well, this is kind of where we were at the time of Ruth and in the period of the judges. Uh, there were about 13 judges, 12 of whom were men, and one was a woman. And uh, during this time, there was a, what you could call a cycle of apostasy. These periods uh, where they would start off with the people close to God, serving God. And then they would gradually forget about God and uh, fall into apostasy. They would fall into immorality and they would fall into idolatry. Idolatry because these countries that they didn't completely excise were still there. And their gods that they worshipped uh, would, would infiltrate into the Jewish tribes. And at their lowest point, the, Jew, the Gentile nations that were still there would uh, come in and they'd attacked attack the Israelites, and uh, they'd either create some sort of national disaster or they'd put them into slavery. And then, when they're at the bottom, the lowest that they can be, that is when they cried out to God. They would cry out to the God of uh, Israel, and He listened each time, and He would raise up a judge, one of these judges, and they would come in and defeat the enemies. But the people were fickle. And the cycle would start over, and they have uh, seven of these cycles recorded in the book of Judges. You know, sometimes we talk about fair-weather friends, you know what I mean. But these people, in these times, were what you would call foul-weather believers, okay? They only wanted God in their lives when trouble was present, and they needed help. Think about America after 9-11 and 2001. Do you, do you recall how all of a sudden the churches were filling up and people were wanting to hear a message of the Lord? I mean, things got real at that time. God bless America. You know, that was it. Um, so that, that's kind of the setting there. Now, in the book of Ruth, these, this characterizes the people at large, weak-faced, I guess is the best way to put it. So let's say, who is uh, Ruth then? Who is Ruth? The person Ruth. Okay, she is a foreign young girl. She's a, a Gentile. She's a, she's a non-Jew. But she's living at this time of Judges, uh, about probably around 1150 B.C. And so many think that this coincides with the uh, time uh, when uh, Gideon was uh, a judge, when he was appointed, Gideon. You remember him, Gideon and the Midianites. So I, I pulled up his uh, a, a scripture uh, concerning his call, uh, just as an example of how God worked. But I also wanted to show that uh, the uh, there's something else here to see, and we're going to be introduced to an individual, a unique, a unique uh, one, uh, called the Angel of the Lord in this scripture. And we should probably focus on who that is as I'm reading the scripture. 
So the angel of the Lord, this is uh, Judges 6, verses 11 to 16. Judges 6, verses 11 to 16. The, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. His memory's a little short, you understand. Now the next verse says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength, in the strength you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and, I, and you will strike down all the Midians, leaving none alive. None alive. The angel of the Lord uh, certainly speaks with the authority of God, does he not? And he certainly claims powers of God. Interesting, right? Okay, now, Ruth, she's a, uh, as I said, she is a Moabite. What is a Moabite? Moab, right? So she's a descendant of Lot, who was a nephew of Abraham. So how do, how do the Moabites get there? Well, this is a pretty ugly story and uh, kind of sordid. But, you know, you remember when the angels come and, and uh, tell Lot to leave Sodom, uh, the only ones that, that get out of the city unscathed are uh, Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. Ultimately, his, his wife looks back at the city, and she's turned into a pillar of salt, but the two daughters and Lot make it away. They end up in a cave of Zoar. And uh, the girls, are they're just feeling like, well, we're never going to get boyfriends around here, you know, and uh, what's going to happen to us? And so they come up with a scheme. Just, an, you know, uh, uh, just a little innocent scheme. They get their father drunk, and they have an incestuous union with him. Uh, each of them does on separate nights. And out of that relationship with the oldest daughter, uh, Moab is born. And that is in Genesis 19, verses 36 and 37. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father, the older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He's the father of, of the Moabites today. So we have the Moabites. And uh, even though they're related to Abraham through Lot, they are not your friends, okay, as far as Israel's concerned. They're constant enemies. Um, they, uh, beginning in uh, the third chapter of Judges, you can read, there's about an 18-year period of Moab constantly attacking the Jews. And so uh, God has a view about Moab, and he tells them uh, that in general they weren't to have deal dealings with the Moab people, Moabite people because they were their enemies. They were not to seek their peace or prosperity. And he, uh, I pulled up the scripture 
where he speaks to them. And Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, this would be to the, the Jews before they enter the promised land. Moses speaking for God says in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Baor and Pethor, in Aram and the Harem to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. And so you hear about Balaam there. That's where uh, King Balak was the Moab king who was watching everything happen as the Jews were coming into their land, and he wants to have them, you know, defeated. And he keeps asking Balaam to prophesy curses on them when they get flipped over because uh, God wouldn't have it. Well, ultimately, Balaam, Balaam did, you know, recommend a, a way of, thwart, of uh, circumventing that by telling the king just to have his daughters go mix in with the Jewish men. Intermarriage. Intermarriage. So regarding, it didn't happen, but regarding intermarriage, uh, why is that such a big deal to God? Why was that such a big deal to God that his people not intermarry? Was, is this prejudicial at some level or is this an eth- ethnic question? What is, what's the problem? Kevin. Hand in hand. Hand in hand, kind of the same thing. And so I think it really comes back to this picture of marriage that represents God's union with fidelity. Marriage, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what he's really showing in this in that, that we can't we can't commit adultery against him by going after idols mm-hmm. ourselves because it's all That's very beautifully said that that the picture is is of the marriage union and the fidelity that's there, and the trust that is there. And that this, the, the problem with intermarriage was that they always brought their gods in, and it was always immoral, and it was always idolatry. And it's like, you know, r- running off and, and uh, being with someone else is just wrong. And God won't have that. And so, that's why it's a big deal. Now, the Moabites have... Uh, they had idolatry, believe me. Uh, they worshipped a god, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, Chemosh. Is it Chemosh or Chemosh? I'm not sure. Do you know, Rob? Well, okay, there you have it. That one. I'm going to say Chemosh, okay? Uh, now, this god is pretty comparable to the Canaanite god, who was Baal, okay? And uh, both of those gods... Uh, were the national gods of their people, and they were given credit for having control over nature such that crops would grow and uh, there would be a good uh, food supply and the rain would come down. So they were given this credit. They were given divine credit for controlling these things. And also, to make sure they worked, they would would have a few human sacrifices, usually children, uh, in the process to ensure that these gods would be uh, would receive what they desired in worship. Now, this idea of who's responsible for the rain and the crops and the fruitfulness uh, will be important as we begin 
the book of Ruth, and it's not a secondary issue. Uh, you know, God is a jealous God. He does not share his glory. He doesn't share his power, especially with fake gods. And so, uh, as uh, uh, they were coming into the land, again, in Deuteronomy, Moses, speaking to the people, tells them something very important. This is before they come into the land. This is a, a bit of a lengthy passage, so bear with me. Deuteronomy 8, it's verses 8 through 17. Deuteronomy 8, excuse me, Deuteronomy 11, verses 8 through 17. Deuteronomy 11, 8 through 17. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I'm commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you're about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you're entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. What's he talking about? Coming from Egypt, that would have been the Fertile Crescent. That would have been the tributaries off the Nile. They had treadmills that they would use to pump the water in. It wasn't coming. They didn't get that much rain. And so that's not what they're going into, it says. It's a, but the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drink, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of your Lord your God are always on it from the begin, beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart, heart and all your soul, that He will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Okay. So there we are. Uh, now where is the story of Ruth taking place? It actually opens in Bethlehem. Of Judah, but quickly moves to Moab in the first vote, verse. Moab, Moab is a land that's located east and a little south of the Dead Sea. It's about anywhere 30 to 50 miles from Bethlehem. It's be what we call present-day Jordan. Uh, but before the end of the chapter, we're going to find that the main characters are going to return to Bethlehem regarding the author of the book of Ruth. Uh, Suffice it to say that it's unknown, it's uncertain. Uh, the Jewish rabbis tradition, traditionally in the Talmud uh, would credit Samuel. Other names put forth are Ezra and King Hezekiah, but it's just not known. The problem with Samuel being the author is that he died before Saul died. And so even though David had been anointed king, he was not in, on his throne as the appointed ruler. So there's some trouble there. Uh, and when was it authored? Well, it's probably somewhere right around 1000 B.C. David is mentioned in the genealogy that proceeds forth from the union of Boaz and Ruth, as we're going to see. But Solomon is not uh, mentioned, and that would be kind of strange if he was uh, 
uh, alive, or if he was on the throne at that time, that he wouldn't have been mentioned. So they're putting it somewhere uh, in David's rule, 1010 B.C. to 950 B.C. So we'll say circa 1000 B.C. Now, purposes. The purposes of the book. I've listed three. The first is this. I think that we will see God's sovereignty as we read this book. Uh, we're going to see that God works in the daily lives of ordinary, seemingly insignificant people. And he does so to accomplish his will. You know, it's not stated in the book that he's specifically guiding Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but there's this constant awareness of his guiding presence as we read the book. I believe you'll see. Second purpose is the genealogy, the genealogy, the history and the legality factors that figure in. Because the book, in the book, uh, David is mentioned. And as he actually, Boaz and Ruth are his great-grandparents. And it, it gives, uh, it legitimizes his place on the throne as coming from Judah. And we'll see the scripture that that fulfills in a minute. Now, more broadly, though, I think it establishes the entire genealogy of Christ all the way back to to Judah through David, which is great. Um, and it fulfills a prophecy in Genesis at the end when Jacob is giving his blessings to all of his sons. Uh, in, verses, uh, in Jacob 49, verses 8 through 12, uh, he's giving this to, to uh, Judah. And in verse 10 says, Genesis 49, 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, Know the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So that's to establish that, that legal genealogy. And you know it's, even, it's confirmed even greater. It's recorded permanently in Christ's genealogy in the book of Matthew, in the first chapter. Matthew 1.5 says, Matthew 1.5, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So that's the official lineage for Jesus Christ and his claim to the throne. And then thirdly, as a purpose, I think the theological uh, is, is uh, good to look at, and I'm speaking of the illustrations, the types that we see uh, in the book of Ruth. And it's going, it's going to be important that we understand some of the Jewish, some of the Mosaic law that applies in this book and will be called upon in this book. Uh, we're going to be introduced to the Mosaic law of the, of the Leverate marriage, which is found in Deuteronomy, um, chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. The Leverate marriage, it actually means brother-in-law marriage. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6 says, uh, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So that's one. And that will be used in the kinsman redeemer. When I look for, you know, just the term kinsman redeemer and a full 
uh, definition of it, I, I get mostly what I found in Leviticus chapter 25. There's, it runs a, a passage all the way, uh, Leviticus 25 verses, 23, verses 25 through 49. Uh, but you have to kind of, when, when Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, he combines these two things, this leveret marriage and the kinsman redeemer components. And I believe the Lord does too. Uh, Leviticus 25, 47, 49 uh, addresses the personal aspect of the kinsman redeemer principle. And it says, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he's sold, he may, re may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. If, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. The other possibility is if it was near the Jubilee, the 50-year Jubilee, all of these debts and all of these slavery uh, contracts were canceled out as well. Now, the second verse out of Leviticus 25 is verse 25. This concerns the land, the property of the Jew. You know, God owns the land. And he, when he gives the land out to the Jews, it cannot be sold. I mean, it can't, can't leave them so that every 50 years, if something has occurred for debt or what have you, they're going to receive the, you know, those contracts. You know, you buy something, it's really a lease back then. And it depends how close you were to the end of the 50 years. It would come back to you. But during the time, it, would, it says here, Leviticus 25, 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman, that's that Goel, is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. And so this, that combines just really beautifully in the book of Ruth. And then so that theologically, Boaz, we have, you know, I don't know if you call him a type or what. He's an illustration. He's a picture of Jesus Christ, who is the kinsman redeemer. He is our kinsman redeemer because he has paid the price. Also, it, uh, it figures heavily in the book uh, other, uh, is faith. Uh, faith, and I would say faith and faithfulness. Okay? I believe that when we study this book, we're going to see uh, the difference between strong faith and weak faith. It's going to jump out at us. And we're going to see faithfulness. And not just on the divine plane, but on the human plane. And it's, and it's really beautiful. So the book itself is really kind of a series of what I'm, I'll call momentous decisions or momentous dilemmas, okay, that require choices to be made. And we're going to see, uh, I call them momentous because they are really of great importance or significant and uh, especially in their bearing on the future. So we'll be looking for that when we get into the text itself shortly. Uh, we'll be looking for some key words, and I've kind of underlined three. The first, of course, you would expect redeem. Redeem, redeemer, redemption, some form of redeem. And that occurs 20 times in the book. And it's to emphasize redemption. And that is closely, that it is closely connected to love. Also, we're going to see return used, primarily in the first chapter, but multiple times. Uh, and I believe it's used to illustrate repentance, uh, which comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. Now, we're going to look at that more closely when we, start, when we start seeing decisions made. But I'll just throw that out for now. Uh, 
And then throughout the book, we also look for a, another word, a kind of a special word, and it's kindness. Uh, kindness or loving kindness, and it comes from the Hebrew word hesed. And it means, uh, well, let me say this first. You know, if you ask someone uh, who's read the book or to tell someone else about it, it's just hard to deny that the book of Ruth is a love story. And it's, and it's one of the most beautiful love stories, maybe in, maybe in all literature. But do you know that the word love only appears one time? And it's not between Ruth and Boaz. It's, it's, it's a comment made from the women about Ruth's love for Naomi. But the word that is used is kindness, hesed. And that speaks of a, a loyalty love, a, lo a loyalty born out of love. And it comes from a covenantal relationship. And it's based on sacrifice and grace. That's God's love. But people can have it too. And we're going to see that word used as we go through. Now the last thing of a note is that this, the book of Ruth is so highly esteemed among uh, Orthodox Jews that it is still read every year on the, uh, on the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks or the Day of First Fruits. And Exodus 23, 16 would tell us, uh, celebrate the festival of harvest, that's Pentecost, with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field, celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather your crops from the field. As Christians, we know first fruits is significant. For redemption, there was a great first fruit uh, uh, gathering at the Pentecost when the 3,000 were preached to. And we know that Christ who rep uh, is the first fruit from the dead. Uh, so it also res re uh, represents resurrection. Okay, so that's the preliminary information. I think we can get... We'll read the first two verses uh, then of the book of Ruth. So let's start to chapter 1 in Ruth, and we'll read, I'll read verses 1 and 2. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Does anyone know what the word sojourn means? To be a foreigner. Say again. To be a foreigner. To be a foreigner. Right. To travel to another place that's not your home. It also has with it connected the idea of brevity. It's a short, a short stay, a short stay. And it says at the end of verse 2 that they remained. We'll see how long as we go through, but, you know, we have to look at this decision, this momentous decision that's been made. Uh, so we have the time, and uh, next time probably it'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the names of the people. But as for now, we do have the time. The story opens in the days of the judges. It is, I mean, the mood was very somber. People were doing whatever they wanted. And it was right in their own eyes. Think of the, you know, the old, the wild old American West, you know, shoot them up. You know, there's just no control. Some regions were not as bad as others. But the, the thing is that apostasy, immorality, and idolatry were pretty commonplace. The place, let's look at that next. Elimelech. He's a Jew from Bethlehem, 
in Judah. And he's taking his wife and his sons to live in Moab, and it's because of a famine. That's important. Another thing that we would note, as he's leaving, he, is, he has likely had to give up his land. They're not, they're not wealthy. They're not staying there because they can, they can handle it through a famine on their own. No. And so there's likely a loss of property as they leave. It would either be to, for, for debt or to cover the expenses of moving and setting up a home in a new place. What about famines? Are famines judgments from God? Do we actually think that? What do you think? Yes, no? To some degree, yes. They're supposed to point us to Him. Exactly. They're supposed to make us look to Him. That's right. You know, so there were like 13 famines in Scripture. All of them are associated at some level with judgment by God in response to the spiritual attitude of His people. They are meant to test faith, just as Jeff has said, to test faith, to, to bring out our choices, to bring people to repentance at times. Remember, remember Moses. Was there? Yeah, probably the best example of that was the famine that drives the ten brothers of Joseph to Egypt. To bring them there. Together, right, and as in the will of its sovereignty, it's in the will of God. It puts the people where they need to be at that point of time because they need to grow into a nation. And also, we find elsewhere that it is a time where God is just waiting, just waiting on these people that it, they're supposed to be uh, dispensed with when the Jews come in. He's waiting for them to come around. It says the Amorites. He's waiting for them. You know. God is long-suffering, and uh, he's in no hurry, and uh, his will will be accomplished. So I hope that we will see that as we go through. I'm going to stop right there today. It's probably a good point for me, and and go forward then. Kevin, would you close us? Amen.